Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. In this episode, I welcome back to the show Dr. Brittany Polat, the author of the new book, How to Journal Like a Stoic. Brittany has a PhD in applied linguistics, is the co founder of the nonprofit Stoic Care, and the author of Tranquility Parenting a book we discussed previously on the podcast. In the conversation, Brittany and I discuss discerning our path in life, stoic journaling versus writing in a diary, the role of acceptance, searching for wisdom, the practice of reframing, and much more. I really enjoy the book and conversation and hope you do as well. All right, without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious Dr. Brittany Polat. Well, Brittany, thank you so much for coming back on In Search of Wisdom. It's great to be here. Thank you. Well, I'm excited. We're going to be talking about your book, Journal Like a Stoic. I was so excited to to see this come out and, and pre-ordered it, and uh, I'm just I'm just loving it. So I couldn't recommend it enough. I think it's so needed and so great. But before we get into the book, I do want to chat with you a little bit about how your path maybe started. In our last conversation, we talked about how you you know you Googled search basically books on wisdom, which I, I absolutely love. Um, I wish that was something I've, I would have done. I think I went through a whole <laughs> stacks of books before getting to books on wisdom. But I'm curious, I, I, I see looking at your, your background and things like that, you have a PhD in applied linguistics. So that's right. I have no idea what that is. Maybe you could help us out there, but also what, how did that come to be? How did you embark on that particular path? Sure. So applied linguistics is the study of language as it's used in the world. And what I specialized in was language learning. So as an adult, what's the best way to learn a second language? And then alternatively for teachers, what's the best way to present that? How do you teach it? How do you test it? How do you make sure people are making progress? So it was all about language as it's used in the real world, hence the name applied. It's not just mapping out grammatical <laughs> you know, structures and languages. It's actually using the language. And it came about because I moved to Turkey and started teaching English there. And when I moved back to the U.S., it just seemed natural for me to continue kind of working in that direction. So I got my master's degree and then my Ph.D. in that and loved it. It is such an intensely fascinating field, and it is very psychological. I'm sure you can imagine, right? Learning a language, it's all about, you know, it's not just about one specific part of the brain that can learn languages. It's about how you approach it as a whole person, because learning a language is such a huge commitment. I'm sure, have you ever tried to learn a language as an adult? I, I have, but not with a a ton of effort on my on my end. I, I took a few classes in in German, 
but didn't necessarily put the effort on my part to, to really become good exactly, at it. Exactly. That's it, right? It <laughs> takes effort. It's such a huge commitment. Yeah. And so interestingly, now that I'm in applied philosophy, I see a lot of parallels between the two, which a lot of people wouldn't really think about. But both of them take an extraordinary commitment to kind of changing your life. In a way, you're changing your life. You're restructuring your brain. So if you've been speaking English your whole life, all of a sudden you've got to train your brain to see things in a German way, right? So you're rewiring your brain, forging those new neural connections. And there are a lot of parallels to an applied philosophy. So as Stoics, of course, we are trying to rewire our brains to see things from a different perspective of acceptance and virtue and things like this. So in a way, it's kind of similar. And of course, it's very hard. It's a lifelong project. You're never going to be a perfect mm -hmm. German speaker. I'm not a perfect English speaker by any means. So it's, it's a lifelong project. So <laughs> for me, it's interesting coming from an applied linguistics background and now being in applied philosophy. It's just there's so much of the psychology that's the same. I love it. It's so fascinating. And I remember our, our last conversation in uh, reading your, your first book. That was your first book, exactly. correct? Mm -hmm. How practical, you know, your thinking and writing really is. Same thing that comes through in this book here. I'll, I'll hold, hold it up. Just tying that in of, of getting very practical and how we, how we think about things and, and live in the world. I'm hoping maybe a, a good place to start this this conversation because there may be listeners that are new to stoicism maybe think that they completely understand stoic journaling and and may have some misconceptions. So how does stoic journaling maybe differ from how someone might write in a in a diary growing up or something like that. Right. So I see the main difference as stoic journaling is you're actually kind of internalizing stoic principles and trying to apply them in your life. For a lot of journaling, you know, there's well, there's all different kinds of journaling, right? If you're doing an unstructured type of journaling, then it's more just kind of loose-ended reflection on your life. Whereas Stoic journaling is very focused and very specific. Okay, so I've read a book on Stoicism, for example. I've learned about virtue. I've learned about acceptance. Now, how am I going to actually apply it in my life? So journaling, like all spiritual exercises, because I do consider Stoic journaling a philosophically spiritual exercise. Your listeners may be familiar with Pierre Hadot's idea of spiritual exercises, and I'd be happy to go into that more if you'd like. But it's basically some, some kind of exercise, psychological exercise that translates knowledge into practice that actually transforms your life. So that's what journaling is. It's this type of exercise where you're taking those kind of abstract concepts and making them very concrete for you in that moment. What am I going to do today when someone starts to make me mad? What am I going to do? So the journaling process, much like any kind of reflection or contemplation that you might do at the beginning of the day, it enables us to get into that frame of mind so that we carry it with us throughout the rest of the day. And as you mentioned earlier on of this learning a new language, creating new neural connections, maybe if you could say more on someone doing this stoic journaling practice, I, I, I take it it's typically done at the end of the day, 
looking back, but I guess it could be could be done in the morning looking at the previous day. Maybe you could speak to that as well. But this idea of, of how a new neural connection might begin to be created. Yeah, so I think a lot of people tend to do it in the morning to prepare themselves for the day, but there's no right or wrong, right? I always tell people to find a practice that works for you. If it doesn't work for you, you're not going to do it. So if it works for you to do it in the evening before bed, that's awesome. In the morning, that's great. Whenever the the main goal with this or really any kind of spiritual practice is just consistency, you know, getting yourself in that routine and finding something that you can actually stick with. So that's the number one criteria. And also don't wait for the perfect time, right? Because a lot of times we think, oh, you know, I'm so busy now. I'll wait until next month when I drop this obligation or something like that. And, you know, that's how procrastination happens. We keep looking for the perfect time. There is no perfect time. There never is. You have to make time for philosophy. As Seneca says, make time for philosophy right now because it won't make time for you. So you, you have to actually find what works for you and carve out that space in your day, whenever it is, whatever it looks like, just carve it out. Um, so as far as how it actually um, kind of rewires your brain, you know, our brain is responsible for our decisions and our behavior. So it's very difficult at first. It's easier now for me because I've been doing it for six years. Um, but still, sometimes we need to just create a space to pause and think about what we're doing. So a lot of people, most of the time, the default is autopilot, right? You know, we get up, we go to work, we deal with our family, we, we have fun on the weekend with our friends, whatever we're doing. We're not really pausing to think carefully about the individual actions that contribute to our lives. And yet, as the Stoics point out, it is those individual thoughts and actions that make us who we are. That's what creates our character. Every thought, every choice, every action that I am making today determines who I will be tomorrow. So whatever you're doing today is not just an action today. It's also the preparation for tomorrow. So, you know, it sounds really urgent and important when you think about it that way. So every time we kind of train our brain, every time we sit down with a journal, for example, or a book on wisdom, we're actually guiding our thoughts into the direction that will make our character the way we want it to be. So that's how I kind of see the rewiring happen. We're preparing our brains for action. And then when those actions arise, we're able to say, wait a minute, you know, this is what I was preparing for. It's this action. And I'm going to change something right now, right here. I, I love it. And you, you mentioned hard work, consistency. You said, you know, it's, it's easier now that you've been doing it for, for six years. And I was thinking, you know, I have a note here just about this, this idea of searching for wisdom. Sometimes we think of searching for something. I'm searching for my keys. At some point in time, I will find them. And then that search is maybe over. But maybe searching for wisdom, we should think about in a, in a different way. And you write in the book, living by stoic principles takes discipline and introspection. In other words, it's hard work. I've been thinking about, you know, this analogy of maybe like dental hygiene or something like that of, yeah, you can get to a point where it's, yeah, maybe 
we're healthy, we have a healthy dental hygiene, we go to the dentist, we're not having issues. But the second you stop flossing and taking care, it's like each and every day moving forward, it's a little bit less healthy. You know, I mean, should we think about maybe wisdom in that way? It's just this, it doesn't quite have an end, this lifelong type of thing of a a spiritual exercise, not something I'm going to do this year and then stop. Yeah, I like your analogy with health there. It's, I mean, it is kind of mental health, psychological, psychological health or spiritual health, however you want to think about it. So I think that's a very apt analogy. If you're super healthy today, but tomorrow you decide to sit on the couch and not exercise, then you won't be healthy anymore. It's an ongoing process. And I really like um, Pierre Hadot's analogy where he compares wisdom to an asymptote. Not to get too <laughs> too mathematical here, but you might remember from high school or college, you've got a, a grid with a vertical axis and a horizontal axis, and there is a type of line that gets infinitely closer to that axis, but will never actually touch it. So it just gets infinitely closer and approaches ever closer, but it will never touch it. So Pierre Hadot says, wisdom is like this. We can make a lot of progress and we can always get closer and closer, but we're never going to actually touch that axis. We're never going to become perfectly wise. It's just something that we have to continue working towards. Um, And, you know, you could say the same for health. Maybe we're we're healthy enough, but we're never going to be a specimen of perfect health. You know, maybe we're always going to have that one little thing that we could still improve. (laughs) Right. So um, I I think that's a really great analogy, but it's also, it also points out kind of why we want to pursue this because we want to be healthy. It is a type of health. It's not as visible as a nice smile, right? When you go to the dentist or, (laughs) you know, physical health, it's not as visible when you're spiritually healthy, but it is equivalent. It's very much the same thing. That idea can be maybe uninspiring for some. You know, it's like you put a box next to your to-do list. You want to check it off, if you will. Like these searches that that have no end. How do we in the way of that same idea of maybe reframing that or creating a, a new perspective, um, because there are many things that like virtue is its own reward. It's just this, this light. How do we maybe reframe and become inspired to, to follow these lifelong practices? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it comes down to joy because once you find the right path for yourself, it's, you know, you have this feeling of, I mean, maybe joy is a little bit hyperbolic, but, you know, we're, we're striving for happiness, right? We're not doing this because we have to. We're not doing it out of some ethical obligation. We're doing it because it's, it makes us happy. We fulfill our capacity for, for love and wisdom and, and joy and courage and all these extremely positive things. I think this is actually one thing that we need to emphasize more in Stoicism is the very positive aspects. For me personally, I don't think I would have stuck with it if it were merely about duty or obligation you know, that type of morality is no fun. It's just all about kind of the sticks rather than the carrots. For me, I see stoicism as that carrot of happiness, 
Seneca calls it the supreme good. He says, it will put you on a par with the gods. I mean, wow, that's what we're going for, right? Sign me up for yeah. that. I'm not here. For me, it's not all about the, you know, the self-discipline as an end in itself. It's about the reward of what we're getting. We get to realize the fullest humanity possible, you know, our capacity for this tremendous thing that's called humanity inside each of us. That's what we're going for. That's what we're after. So I completely understand that question. A lot of times we make it seem like drudgery, like it's no fun. And I don't think that's how it's supposed to be at all. It's supposed to be enlightening, uplifting, and joyful. I couldn't agree more. And that, that really comes through, I would say, in this book and your previous book. I love, you know, in the title, Tranquility, you know, your last book. It's like, and I see those like joy and tranquility you know, both existing at the, at the same, same time. Uh, I agree. It does needs to be a, there's room for a greater level of focus on that aspect of it, of, of tranquility and, and joy. Um, and we're going to talk maybe a little bit about acceptance, which is in the, in the subtitle. But before we do that, maybe you could share with the listeners a little bit about the, the format of the book. Right. So the format is kind of unique. It's actually a 90-day program. So it's not the type of journal where you can just sit down and randomly pick a day or that kind of thing. It is a very structured program. And I I developed it so that the, the beginning of the program is a little bit more basic, you know, foundational. And then we kind of work through to the more psychologically plec- complex concepts towards the end. So it's three 30-day courses. Course A is examining the inner critic. So I think this is a great place to start because so many of us are so critical on ourselves, right? Especially maybe those of us who are struggling with finding joy or acceptance. Um, Maybe we've had perfectionism in our past. You know, we're very, very harsh with ourselves. And so I think the first thing to do is examine that, right? Examine some of the assumptions that we've been bringing towards ourselves and towards our lives in general. And, and kind of getting some distance from that and saying, wait a minute, do I really need to be so critical with myself? And one of the things I try to emphasize is that you can have high standards, but you can be compassionate towards yourself as well. Those two things are compatible. You know, sometimes people think, well, if, I, if I'm too compassionate or understanding on myself, I'm going to slip. I'm never going to make progress. And that's not necessarily true you can still maintain those high standards and work towards them every day, but still remember, hey, I'm human, you know, I'm going to slip up sometimes. And that's perfectly normal. In my personal journey, a lot of times I feel like it's two steps forward and one step back. You know, sometimes I do things and I think, oh, why did I do that? You know, that wasn't, that (laughs) wasn't the way I wanted to do things. But I actually learn more from my mistakes then I learn from the areas where I've succeeded all the time, right? So I think as long as you keep a growth mindset and say, I'm going to make some mistakes, but what can I learn from those so that I can keep going? So I think kind of just taking a step back and looking at our our overall growth process is really important. And that's kind of what we want to do in course A. Um, Course B, the second 30 days, is all about acceptance, the road to acceptance, And this involves, you know, accepting other people, accepting yourself, accepting your life, 
Maybe you've had some disappointments. Maybe things didn't turn out the way you wanted. Maybe your dreams just never came true. What are we going to do about it, right? It's not worth sitting around and being sad about. We need to come to terms with all of this. And the last 30 days is more about virtue. So applying these concepts in everyday life. Now that we are more aware of ourselves, now that we're more accepting, what can we do so that we can interact successfully with other people and accomplish some of our other goals in life? I love it. I I appreciate that. And uh, the idea, as you said, just to reiterate it, of, of having high standards and compassion at the same time, you know, these key things, another thing in stoicism and in just probably wisdom in general of an and kind of sitting in the middle between so many things of where we have to kind of hold, hold two perspectives at, at once. The idea of acceptance, it's like I say, a big portion of the book. It's the middle 30 days, the road to acceptance. In your view, how does acceptance connect with wisdom, the good life, whatever, you know, words you'd want to throw in there, maybe? Well, we have to recognize that nobody is ever going to get everything they want, right? We can have grandiose ideas (laughs) of the kind of person we want to be or the kind of world we want to live in, but it's just not all going to come true. So at a certain level, we have to accept that we can't control everything in the world. And so here we start to bring in the dichotomy of control. the the famous distinction between what's up to us and what isn't up to us in stoicism. And we start to encounter things like illness and aging and death, those huge things that are just part of nature. No person can control those. No society can control those. Um, Natural disasters, you know, even man-made plagues such as war, you know, no one person can control all of those. So, Whenever we have, we start getting experience of the world, we are bound to encounter some of these things at some point, not to mention the more mundane and prosaic annoyances like other people you have to deal with, right? (laughs) (laughs) Colleagues at work not getting the promotion, you know, there are all kinds of things that come up in any person's life. So acceptance is really a key part of happiness, because if you can come to terms with those in a wise way, and again, we're not talking about just ignoring them or sweeping them under the carpet, right? That doesn't work. We're talking about coming to grips with these in a very psychologically healthy way, which is what the Stoics advocate. If you can do that, then you are well on your way to a happy life. I don't see that as much talked about in in Stoicism, and maybe I'm wrong, but please... uh don't feel a need to agree or anything like that. But it's like, when you read meditations, there's just so much about impermanence and all of these quotes from Heraclitus of maybe accepting and and trying to see how the world works, which really shows up in in Buddhism. Some people call impermanence like Buddhism 101. It's It's a real foundational thing. Um, And sometimes I wish there was a bit more of a focus on impermanence, acceptance, and the the how the world works. What are your thoughts there on that ramble? Mm. (laughs) Yeah, um, 
Well, you might have to just dig a little bit deeper. I think um, Epictetus talks about it. Of course, Epictetus had a lifelong disability, so it was at the forefront of his mind. And of course, he had that background being a slave. So, you know, that was something he had come to grips with early in his life, I think. Um, But one of my favorite lines from Epictetus is, I am not eternal, I'm not everlasting, but I'm a human. Like an hour is Mm. part of a day. And like an hour, I will pass away. I just think that's such a beautiful metaphor for who we are and this idea of death. And I think, um, you know, maybe what you're bringing out here is kind of the lack of focus on physics in general in modern contemporary stoicism. And physics would involve the relationship with the whole world. You know, sometimes people think of one specific Mm. part of ancient Stoic physics, which was theology. That's not what I'm referring to. What I see physics as is just Mm. seeing ourselves as part of nature, you know, the bigger picture. So we have to recognize that we are human. What does it mean to be a human? Well, part of it is being mortal. Part of it is being a very small speck in a huge universe, right? So all of these things inform our perspective on everyday life, but also on those big picture questions, you know, why am I here, this kind of thing, right? So so taking that view of the cosmos as a whole and of our nature as humans, I think can really make a difference in our level of acceptance toward everything in the world. And I find it so inspiring as well, and that might not be the the case for for everyone, but this the idea of interconnectedness and the cosmopolis and that type of stuff, um, which I think many listeners are probably familiar about it because I, br- I bring it up quite a quite a bit on in in episodes. But I, I find it so inspiring of you know being at home and being connected with um, with something larger. I'm I'm curious to transition, and I want to share a little bit of uh, the specific format for for the listeners. So there is a, a stoic quote or, or passage that begins each day, and then there's a bit of commentary, and then I really love that you included two different questions. I thought that was so wise to to give people the option of pick one. How did you come up with that that idea to include two different questions and give options to people? Oh, um, I, I always like to give people options because, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I recognize that a lot of people coming to this book are going to be coming from different backgrounds. And that's the beauty of stoicism, right? <clears throat> Is that you can, you know, a university student can benefit from it or a retiree can benefit from it. You know, it's it's a guideline, a yeah. system of guidance for anyone at any point in their lives. So people bring to it their different life experiences, their different needs. Um, so I think I really just wanted to make it relevant for people. So giving people some options and seeing, you know, you could do both if you have time or would like to, but, you know, sometimes one will just resonate more than another. So yeah, I'm, I'm all about personalizing your philosophy. Well, you did a great job there, and I wanted to maybe highlight day 40 and spend a bit of time here uh, on, and again, this is in that road to acceptance portion of the book, and day 40 is titled Accepting Constant Change. 
And on the second question for this day, I'll read it here for the listeners. It says, describe a major transition you experienced in your life as the movement from one condition to another. Try to write objectively, like a scientist describing the results of an experiment. I love this. Could you say more about writing objectively and this idea of maybe looking at something as a scientist? Yeah, sure. I really like this one too. Um, Maybe I'll just read the quote that starts that day for the audience. Great. The unripe grape, the ripe bunch, the dried grape, all are changes, not into nothing, but into something which exists not yet. And that is from Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, 1135. So, I think this is what the Stoics are asking us to do in a lot of ways. So part of, to me, one of the biggest foundations of the philosophy is the search for truth, right? It's for looking at things in a new way that's bringing us closer to the truth. We don't want to be deluded, right? We're not trying to pull the wool over our eyes just to be happy. Happiness has to be based on an understanding of the world, an accurate understanding of the world. And so it seems natural, you know, from our 21st century perspective, we have a very different idea of science than was available to the ancient Greeks and Romans. So it seems very natural to draw on this, um, you know, this effort at objectivity, which we may never, well, we will never become perfectly objective, right? That's not humanly possible, but we can become more objective and pull away those layers of opinion and assumption and those, you know, that baggage that we carry with us of negative experiences, just pull all that away until we get to the kernel of truth, which is what is actually happening here. So when we pull away those different layers and we start looking at our lives objectively like a scientist. So here, you know, when I read this passage, I think about the big transitions like birth and death and aging. You could also apply that to, you know, smaller transitions like starting a new job or starting, you know, a new life partnership, something like that. But it's all about getting outside of yourself, you know, your small little world here and kind of seeing the bigger picture, the way that things really are. And if you're able to do that, suddenly you don't have that same emotional attachment. You don't have that same emotional need, you know, to be afraid of change or to fear what's coming next or regret something that you might've done differently, all of that kind of falls away when you take this big picture, more objective, more scientific approach for looking at things. So I think that's just one example. We can Mm -hmm. do that in other ways too. You know, you could do that anytime you're facing a big problem. You can say, okay, let me remove the emotional language, the emotional verbiage around this project. How can I see this simply as a transition from one state to another. So I think you can apply that in lots of different areas of life. Beautiful. I'd love to stay there and towards the second half of these conversations, try to get practical and maybe give examples, which, which can be challenging because everyone is, is different. But I was thinking of this particular question and you're talking about major transitions it, it may be some sort of major transition of, of somebody doing this. You might think of um, a divorce or the loss of a loved one or, you know, something like that. A, a major transition could be something that arises 
you know, uh, emotions and his, and his difficult and things. Could you say more about how you get from that and, you know, applying stoicism and, and using this guide? Well, I found in my personal experience that whenever I get too engrossed in myself, that's when things kind of start to go haywire. I start feeling sorry for myself, you know, oh, why did that happen to me? As if it never happens to anybody else, right? And so when we become more objective, we're able to see, we're able to get outside of that petty and partial opinion, uh, which is the term that Pierre Hadot uses, partial, meaning it's not complete. You don't have a complete view of the world and also partial as in Mm. I'm partial to that, you know, it's subjective, right? It's, it's your slanted perspective on something. It's not the objective way that things are actually happening. So to get outside that partial view of the world, you know, taking this scientific view is very helpful. And, and like I said, you know, it gets you outside of those emotions that we connect to our ego. So you might say it's a process of getting outside of your ego. And I actually think, again, this is really relevant for anybody's quest for wisdom, because I see all of the major wisdom traditions of the world, their main goal is to get us outside of our ego. So I always think about Mm. um, one of my favorite authors of religion, comparative religion, is Karen Armstrong. And she talks about the ancient Greek idea of ecstasis, stepping outside of yourself, and that many of the religions, whether that's Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and others as well that are not as well known, the idea is for us to step outside of ourselves, this ecstasis, stepping out, outside of our mundane experience of the world and trying to get at something a little bit higher, a little bit more universal. Well, that's also a description of science and the scientific process, right? The procedures that scientists go through is trying to remove that partiality so that they can get more at the universal, you know, a universal understanding of the way the world functions. So I think a lot of wisdom traditions and certainly stoicism fits this. It's all about getting outside of, you know, my level, right? I'm sitting here looking at a certain picture on the wall, feeling certain things that have happened to me in my life. How do I get outside of that to something that's more universal that we all experience? And this automatically leads me to leave behind, you know, my petty resentments or whatever's going on and think about, wait a minute, this (laughs) is a universal human experience. That person right there is also feeling that this person right here has had a similar experience, you know, and once you start getting outside of the partial and more towards the universal, it all makes a lot more sense and and it becomes a lot less personal. So you can handle it in a more objective and wise way. When you read some of the, the Stoics, like you have a particular, uh, an entry, I don't exactly remember what, what day it it falls on, but this idea of Stoic attention. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it connects to, to what we're talking about, at least the, my, my question does. The idea of getting beyond ourselves, when you bring up different wisdom traditions like Buddhism and these different things, it's often connected with a, a stillness practice, some sort of contemplative practice as a way to maybe come to this realization. I'm always curious you know, when you read these ancient Stoics like Epictetus and and talking about attention and this focus, 
it reads very similar to me of of what some of the Buddhist you know scholars and philosophers are are talking about as well. How do you think they came to this particularly insight? Do you think they would recommend some sort of stillness practice? Um, and I think journaling could be under that umbrella of a contemplative type of practice there. But just to throw a broad curiosity question at you. Absolutely. I agree with you that the Stoic idea of attention, which is called prosike, is quite similar to Buddhism in some ways. <clears throat> it's also similar to Confucianism, to the idea of quiet sitting, which the Confucians advocated. Mm. And I really like the idea of quiet sitting as opposed to some kind of structured meditation or even insight meditation, because it's just a space you know, you're not necessarily trying to accomplish anything. You don't have to journal. You don't have to do something specific. It's just a time to sit and be one with the bigger picture. I like to do this in nature if possible, or, you know, looking at an image of nature or something like that. You could, you could do this near a candle or some kind of, you know, just stepping outside of your regular space in some way. And to do this quiet sitting, you could incorporate reading or, you know, whatever you want. It's, this is a version of what I do myself every morning. I have, you know, I get up, I get my coffee, and then I spend an hour doing some form of philosophy, whether it's just thinking, sometimes, you know, gazing out the window, looking at the sunrise, or if it's reading, writing, journaling, whatever it is, there's just a space there for you to be with yourself and kind of connect to the bigger picture. Um, so I absolutely agree that a lot of the wisdom traditions follow this. And I think it's just basic human psychology. The best wisdom traditions, you know, connect in some way. Stoicism was explicitly based on observations of human nature and psychology. I think a lot of other ones were as well. And even some that are not explicitly, they don't call themselves psychological. They still take advantage of some basic functions and features of human psychology that make them very, you know, very palatable to a wide number of people. So it all goes back to human nature and what our brains need in order to find this sense of connection. I love it. I love this idea of quiet sitting. Uh, I've heard it said once before, I'm, I'm not sure where I heard it, but that maybe of the Stoic writings that we have, maybe 90% or so are, are probably lost. I wonder if in that 90%, if there's truth to that, if there's maybe some, some info in terms of quiet sitting or some sort of stillness practices, you know, it's, it's interesting, even though we have a significant amount, we, we have a relatively small portion of it that survives today. Yeah, you're right. It's probably actually higher than 90%, especially when you're thinking about the Greek Stoa. So most of the writings we have are from the Romans, right? From the Roman period. But the original mm. Stoicism of yeah. the Greeks is practically all lost. And I agree with you. I think if we had all those writings, we would have such a rich understanding of the way they actually practiced philosophy and you know, living in a philosophical community, I'm fascinated by this idea of the actual <laughs> yeah. the school, right? Or, you know, in some kind of setting like Zeno taught near the marketplace, what was that actually like? You know, people coming and going, listening to a philosophy lecture, how did they interact with each other? How did Cleanthes learn from Zeno and this kind of thing? I find it really fascinating. And we simply don't have any evidence for what that actually looked like. 
but I agree. I would, I would love to know that. Yeah, it's really interesting. Let me ask, as we start to, to wind down on the conversation, uh, a little bit about virtue. So the third part is, is living with virtue. And in the beginning of the book, you talk about cardinal virtues. And I'm, I'm curious, like, when I think about this idea of examining your day, whether it's at night or in the morning, and you're looking back without some sort of principles, some sort of whether cardinal virtues or values, what, whatever you would maybe want to call them, what are you examining against? You know, it seems to be you, you just have to have something, some sort of clarity of the principles that you want to live by for this to, to be a thing and be something really effective for you. Right. Yeah, I think it's interesting. That reminds me of the idea of authenticity, which is really popular in our culture. But it seems to me that a lot of people's idea of being authentic is just looking inside yourself the way you are today and seeing you know, what kind of things you want. Whereas I think probably most wisdom traditions, they say you need to look at some kind of guiding system and then figure out how you're going to authentically live that system. So I think you're absolutely right. Um, the beauty of most wisdom traditions and certainly stoicism is that it gives you that operating system that you can you know, plug into the computer and then figure out how you're going to use that to navigate your life. I, you know, for many years, I didn't have really any kind of navigational system other than just what the broader culture offered, which is pretty much, you know, having a fulfilling career and making money. This is what's considered advancing in life. And at some point, I just realized that wasn't enough, you know, that that wasn't everything that there was, and it wasn't guiding me properly, and I needed something else. And so that's when I started looking for the the wisdom that Stoicism offers. So I totally agree. We need these principles to reflect on and to, to give us a direction and a path in life. It's interesting, as you talk about authenticity and accepting yourself, like just as you are, as we were talking about earlier, this way of acceptance, like one of those things, and maybe this is an example of holding these two things of accepting that you're not a sage, you're not necessarily going to be a sage, but at the same time, you can become, you can move closer in that direction you know, it seems to be a very different thing than some of the modern stuff around authenticity or like radical self-acceptance type of stuff, which I guess it all depends how you how you look at it and things like that as well. But yeah, it's an interesting thing how there's um, some pretty significant differences there. I guess as a as a way to, to wrap up, to spend a bit of time on wisdom. We've essentially been talking about wisdom for probably the whole time, but how you define or or think about wisdom in daily life today. Right. So I tend to think it's in the choices that you make, but choices are not simply Mm -hmm. born of the moment, right? So good judgment is something that you build up over time. So if I make a choice today to not eat a piece of chocolate cake, (laughs) that's, you know, that didn't come from (laughs) nowhere. Maybe I've built up my capacity to do that over the past few years. Maybe I've really been working hard on it. Maybe I've, you know, read some books that 
give me mental techniques for how to say no to the chocolate cake or whatever that is. So every decision that we make is based on our previous decisions. So kind of coming full circle, I guess, like, like we were talking about at the beginning, you know, your the character that you create for yourself today is also puts you on the path for who you're going to be tomorrow. So I think wisdom is a matter of making good choices, but it's also a matter of shaping your future choices, if that makes sense. And maybe as a way to wrap up and sum up a bit of what we're talking about, you know, how does journaling and this book, Journal Like a Stoic, come in and and help with that, you know, that path to wisdom? Yeah, so I do provide some basic Stoic principles. So that can be helpful for some people who are not familiar with the virtues and things like that. But I think more than that, it's just the idea of having that quiet sitting every day, but in a guided way. Mm -hmm. It's basically the book that I wanted to read when I was first starting out. (laughs) Um, So I've created something that can hopefully guide some people along that path. So if you're able to do it for three months or however much you're able to do, if you complete the program, you will have lived with stoicism for 90 days in your life. And that's enough to start restructuring your brain, you know, making those new neural connections that we were talking about. It's enough to get you on the path to a different life. So I think it's just kind of, you know, having someone there to kind of pat you on the back when you do a good good job and maybe give you some suggestions for the next day, things like that. Kind of like, you know, having a friend along to help you out. (laughs) Well, me too. I I couldn't recommend it enough. This is, I think I wish the first book that I picked up on, on my journey into stoicism, I think it's great then and, and now, I think this will be something that I go through multiple copies a a year. So it's absolutely great. I want to say congratulations on that. And thank you for putting it together. Awesome. Thank you so much for the kind words and for having me on the show today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Would you mind sharing with the listeners? I know you have uh, the nonprofit Stoic Care. Could you kind of give us an update and share a little bit about what you've been up to? Sure. Yeah, we're busy at Stoic Care. We've got a couple of workshops coming up this year. The next one is on animal care and stoicism, which might be interesting for people with animal friends. Mm -hmm. It's not something that's talked about very much, right? So we actually have Greg Sadler, Andy Shaka, and Catherine Cormulis, some excellent speakers and thinkers who are going to start the conversation on what does this look like? You know, what does contemporary stoicism have to say about animal care? What is this relationship? And I can tell you, it needs a lot of updating from ancient stoicism because the ancient stoics didn't think very highly of animals. So this is an area that we really want to kind of reconceptualize for today. Um, We've also got a course coming up on Stoic love starting in February. So approaching love from a Stoic perspective, which some people might think is an oxymoron, but it's not. (laughs) The Stoics have a lot to say about Mm -hmm. loving yourself and loving other people. So we cover things like the foundations of Stoic love and compassion, acceptance, self-acceptance, goodwill, things like that. So those are both over on the Stoic Care website. And I also wanted to mention Modern Stoicism is having an in-person meeting, the Stoic Summit, which is our first in-person gathering since 2019, since before the pandemic. And that is going to be in Tampa on April 1st. Not an April Fool's joke. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Beautiful. 
And that course on on Stoic Love, is that uh, available now? Is that like an on-demand or could you say Um, more? It is starting February 1st. We wanted to do it during the month of love. Great. Um, It's open for enrollment right now. And it will be, enrollment will be continuous after that, but it's not available at the moment until February 1st. Okay, wonderful. Well, we'll link that in the show notes for everyone to to easily check out. I, I appreciate you sharing all of that. Um, and then where else would you point? I know you have a website and things like that. Where else would you point listeners that are interested in, in learning more? Right. So stoiccare.com. Um, I'm on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter. I have my personal website at livinginagreement.com, which is kind of more theoretical, philosophical reflections. I try to make it practical as well, but it's kind of more of a philosophical angle. So either of those. And I'm always happy to hear from listeners. So if anybody ever wants to ask me a question or recommend an idea for anything, please do reach out to me at those websites or on Twitter. Well, Dr. Brittany Polat, thank you so much for coming back on In Search of Wisdom. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening. I hope you found something useful. If so, I encourage you to put what you heard into practice. You can learn more at perennialleader.com. There you'll find links to show notes, our daily email newsletter, and reading in the good life, a free weekly meetup. Until next time, be wise and be well.